Welcome to the Dirt Reporters Podcast for the week of May 26th. I'm DirtOnDirt.com staff writer Joshua Joyner, joined by the rest of the Dirt on Dirt editorial staff for our weekly discussion on all the latest news results and notable topics of Dirt Late Model Racing. This podcast is a weekly feature here on Dirt on Dirt, appearing every Wednesday morning on the website and in your favorite podcast app if you subscribe to the DOD podcast feed. Joining me today, we have DirtOnDirt.com managing editor Todd Turner. Todd, we're heading into Memorial Day weekend. Do you have any big plans for the holiday? Yeah, I'm saving up my energy for the 90-some-odd races on our schedule. Uh, um, I'll, I'll, I'll be ready. Give me a couple more days, and I'll be uh, <laughs> fighting ready to go on Friday. Sorry, it is a, a busy weekend uh, ahead, a lot to uh, to cover, to manage, and to get posted on the website. Also, we have DirtOnDirt.com, senior writer Kevin Kovac. Kevin, a few weeks ago, I uh, kind of gave Todd kudos on here on the podcast after his home state of Kentucky not only produced a great race, and of course I'm talking about the Lucas Oil race at Florence, uh, but also produced a home state winner in Josh Rice there. Your home state of Pennsylvania was kind of in the spotlight this weekend, and I feel like, uh, at least compared to Kentucky, it didn't live up to the expectations uh, with Port Royal's World of Outlaws race, races leaving a little bit to be desired, and of course, Southern Invader Chris Madden sweeping the weekend. Kevin, what happened? Uh, I'm not really sure. You know, like I said, we needed a little more water on the racetrack, and just one of those weekends, I guess, where the racetrack wasn't uh, conducive to a lot of passing and, and a lot of action or uh, it was something different there at Port Royal, but I mean, I know Chris Madden didn't win both in, uh, in the first night, uh, you know, other Southern guy, you know, Brandon Overton finished second, but the second night, look at that podium. You know, there was two other Pennsylvania boys up there. You know, there was a uh, Rick Eckert finished second and Dan Stone finished third. So we had a good, we had good representation still in Pennsylvania. There you go. Definitely, uh, definitely held held out okay there. Uh, and a little disappointed to see the Port Royal. The racing's been really good there. Uh, the past few big races have been there, but uh, you know every track gets a little you know setback every now and then. So, uh, and of course we have DirtOnDirt.com weekend editor Robert Holman. Robert, I believe you had a eventful weekend as well, although not at the racetrack this time, right? Oh yes, yeah. spent uh, hours upon hours at uh, graduation parties and ceremonies and project graduations and stuff like that. It's my my youngest, my 17 year old uh, son Riley graduated from high school, so now we are potential empty nesters. I don't know. Uh, we're kind of contemplating throwing my 22 year old out as well. So we'll see what happens there. It's uh you know. Uh, time to, to get him out to the shop and make him go to the races and get us some, some more hands at the racetrack now. That's what I need. That's right. Put him to work. There you go. Well, we're glad to hear all that went well, and uh, congratulations to your son and to you and your family on uh, his graduation there. Okay, well, we got a busy uh, slate to cover here between uh, both national tours being in action over the past weekend, and as we already mentioned, a busy Memorial Day weekend ahead. We'll start with looking back on the World of Outlaws, Morton Bill and his late model series doubleheader at Port Royal Speedway. Kevin, you were there at that one and watched, uh, as we just mentioned, Chris Madden sweep the weekend. And uh, I'm just wondering, after seeing that and seeing how Brandon Shepard, his uh, rival on the World of Outlaws uh, points chase there, how he struggled a bit in Saturday's uh, feature. I think he was third on Friday, then struggled on Saturday and ended up 15th. So with that in mind, do you feel like, uh, Kevin, after watching that this weekend, that Madden, is is he the favorite now in the World of Outlaws points, Chase? The way the way he's actually running right now, there's no doubt. I I, I would say he's a favorite. If he just had not missed those two features down there in Florida at Volusia, he would be the point leader. He'd have a, you know, instead of 26 behind, 
he'd probably be that much or more ahead because all he had to do is start those two features and, and that would have given him the, the extra points to, to be, uh, be on top of Shepard. And, uh, he, he's just, he's really a confident. I mean, I, there's no absence of confidence in, in Chris Madden. I think we all know that. I mean, that guy thinks he can go anywhere and win and he is doing that now. Uh, if you look now, he went to Mississippi thunder. He's got three wins in a row now after sweeping the weekend goes to Mississippi thunder, uh, a, a bull ring, black dirt, and, and they wet that track down, worked it before the feature. So he had to run that cushion, and he still won. And then he goes to Port Royal, a big old half mile that ended up being slick and, and getting rubbered up during the features. Actually, more his style, he said, and he wins. So he has to be really happy about how things have gone right now, how how he's he's almost eliminated that uh, – that point deficit and, and Shepard had a stumble on Saturday. He had, he ran well on, on, on a Friday night, finished third. And then he goes on Saturday, he, he's outside pole in the heat race and he slipped back to fourth in the heat in which put him immediately well back in the field. And then he, and there was no movement in that feature. They, they had a little problem at, uh, at Port Royal looked like they had their reservoir that they holds their water. Uh, wasn't it, didn't it, it went dry before the feature. They were not able to water the feature before, uh, before the track for the feature and, and get it, you know, bring it back a little bit. So it just became a one lane uh, racetrack and Shepard couldn't go anywhere. 15th while Madden's winning first, that cut that point lead in half. So I, I'm, I'm really think that it, Madden is, uh, is going to be tough the rest of this year because he he's focusing on this. He, he's focusing on the world of outlaws. He has said he is not running his two draw, two crew guys ragged, going all over the place on off weekends. He'll go to Eldora, obviously, but he's not. He didn't go to Virginia Motor last week. He's not racing this weekend. He is focusing on the Outlaws, and uh, I, I think that's the right thing to do if he wants to win it. And he's come close before, so this, you know, a lot of guys they come close and then they they finally win it later, and it, it could be his year. You know, it, it, it's looking good for him. The uh, fully focused on the Outlaws uh, tour seems to be paying off so far. So it, he keeps creeping up a little bit on, on Shepard there. Not, to me, it looks like if he can just get the points lead, you know, I think it's going to be hard for, for Shepard to get it back unless he drastically improves his performance, which could happen, uh, of course. The other uh, storyline there was Brandon Overton, who after sweeping Virginia, the Virginia ultimate doubleheader, Went in there, finished second on Friday night, and when he gets the the lead at the start of the feature on Saturday, you're expecting okay, he you know it's his first time there, he got it dialed in on Friday, and now he's he's about to run off and hide with it on Saturday. Of course, he gets into traffic, and something you don't see very often from Brandon Overton, a, a rare mistake that allowed uh, Madden to get under him and get by. Kevin, I know you spoke with him after. Was uh, kind of what was his uh, thoughts afterward after that happened? Uh, was there any issue with what happened? I know there was a little bit of contact. Uh, what did he have to say about it? He was just disappointed. I I just saw him walking through the pit area. He, he went in his trailer for a while right after he got back in the pits. I mean, he also lost third place on the last lap. He he went high in, in one and two, like trying to make a little bit of a move to try to maybe get Ecker for second. And then Dan Stone got him for third. So he just was he was like a moping driver after the race. I saw him walk through the pits uh, to go give back his, his Hans device to David Stremme and and then I, I caught him on his way back there and he was just so, I mean, down because he knows that he had that race. He could have won. He should have won that race, but he got too close to a lap car. That's not what you do with the rubbered uh, racetrack. And he was kicking himself and uh, he, he, he did get made contact with uh, there was contact there 
with Chris Madden when uh, when he slipped when Overton slipped high. He wasn't holding that against him. He he said, "Hey, I, I slipped high, left him the rubber lane." And and Madden was actually a little worried about it too. Uh, after the race, when I talked to him, he asked me, "Did you talk to Overton? What did he say?" You know, and because those guys, I mean, they're both down south. They race against each other a lot. They've had their run-ins before on rubber tracks like that. And, uh, and I told him that no, uh, Overton did not hold it against you, uh, Chris. I mean, he knows the, that's the way, what, that's just what happens on that kind of racetrack. And those guys are all used to that too. They know, uh, that's why, and then Madden said, that's why there's a lot of fights down South trying to get that ra- one lane of rubber sometimes. So, uh, I, I think yeah. everything was okay there, but Matt uh, Overton was definitely disappointed. It's funny that you mentioned that about uh, the two uh, Madden and Overton racing like that from down south because that thought crossed my mind as I'm watching that feature and watching Madden try to chase Overton down. I was like, this could be a Sunday afternoon at Cherokee that I'm watching here if, if I didn't know any better. Uh, Todd, what do you think? Any thoughts on uh, on the races, the World of Outlaws races there at Port Royal? Well, I think it's funny what uh, Kevin was mentioning about Madden, about winning at different types of racetracks. And, and I've often wondered that about Madden. I think I think everybody watches him when he goes to Farmer City or, or Mississippi Thunder or somewhere. It's like, oh, this, this is going to be not his cup of tea and he's going to struggle. And I think really what it is with Madden is being from where he is, Cherokee and all those those races that that's the style we're used to seeing him and that's the style where he's excelled and so that's where he's raced mostly of course he's run on the world of outlaws and with ray cook series on some different tracks but i think everybody's waiting for him to be oh he won't be any good here and and i think that's probably just kind of in our heads you know if you look back not that he's thrived necessarily at quarter miles or whatever but uh but he he is a versatile solid race car driver i don't think we have to worry about him going somewhere and and uh and rolling over because it's uh you know not his type of track or whatever that bodes well for him at least uh my perspective of that looking forward to the world of outlaws uh races but uh but there's no doubt that poor royal race was just right up his alley i mean those guys Wendell Wallace is another guy that comes to mind. Somebody who's really good in the rubber, you know. And other guys, you know, can make you can make a little mistake or do uh, mess up your pacing or something. But Madden is spot on in that condition. So, uh, so yeah, I'm sure he was thrilled uh, thrilled to see that opening when Overton uh, uh, slipped up there. You know, I was reading Kevin's story about that, and I wasn't able to watch the race. But as soon as I got to the story, I'm like. Wow, I gotta see this, you know, and just that moment. I mean, as Kevin mentioned, watching from the infield, just being kind of like, "Whoa, wait!" I, you know, I almost missed a pass for the lead that I didn't expect. So that was really, uh, really an unexpected, uh, an unexpected occurrence there. Uh, and Madden uh, made the most of it. And one thing we we didn't mention, if you hadn't seen the highlights, that Overton almost lost it whenever he went into to turn three, uh, trying to get the lead back from Madden, got in there a little too hot, and I, I think he kind of spun in it to, to not hit Madden and he almost lost it. They had to throw a caution because he was driver's side door facing the oncoming traffic, but he did correct it and was able to continue on in fourth or fifth and then ended up fourth. But uh, Robert, anything you want to want to add there uh, looking back on Port Royal? You know, you think about uh, Brandon Overton and, and the thing, you know, and like Kevin was talking about how down he was, is there a driver out there really who's, who's harder on himself than, than Brandon Overton? I mean, this guy obviously wants to win, and, and like Madden, he thinks he could win uh, pretty much wherever he goes, and he goes out and works really hard and, t- and tests and tries to get better at all these places. The You know, the kid finished a second and fourth at Port Royal, you know, way away from home. 
and he's terribly hard on himself. You know, that just kind of stands out to me about about him, about how committed he is and how much he wants to win and how difficult it is out there, you know, for, for these guys to, to win races. He knew he had one right there, uh, a big one, and, and kind of let it get away. And so he, he's really hard on himself and sometimes uh, unnecessarily hard on himself. There are a lot of guys that you could look down through that list that could be a lot more disappointed than Brandon Overton. And there's uh, another thing to note, I guess, on Overton, too. It kind of would like it made it even harder for him to, to lose that race was it was the Billy Vasek Memorial. Billy was uh, from that area right there by Port Royal. And he came down in 2019 uh, to help uh, Brandon when he was at Rum Runner Racing and, and really helped get that team going. Like when Brandon was there beginning of the year, uh, they were hitting their stride. And, and then he died in a, a camper fire down there in North Carolina. Uh, where he was staying at a campground. And, and, and I remember talking to Brandon, you know, what, that two years ago when that happened, uh, you know, it, it just uh, uh, getting him on the phone to get some uh, thoughts from him. And, and, and he was broken down. I mean, he had really taken a liking to, to Billy. They had become friends even before that when uh, when, when uh, Brandon had driven a, a Masters built car a little bit uh, and a few years earlier. And so, you know, that that was a race he wanted to win. I mean, that would have been special for him to win at Port Royals first time there. And it's a Billy Vasek Memorial. So uh, that, that even factored in more when he's like, man, why, why did why he kept saying it? Why did I why did I do that? Why did I make that move? I was trying too hard, I guess he said. Yeah, I'm glad you you brought that up, Kevin. I had that in my notes to mention, uh, but we had skimmed over it as we were going here. But that was, uh, like you said, I'm sure some emotional play there uh, that Brant Overton was was hoping to win one for for his former crew chief there and in, uh, in his memory. So it's unfortunate. Okay, I think uh, I think probably enough on. Uh, Port Royal, we, we'll talk a little bit about the other national tour. Uh, Luke, the Lucas Oil Lake Mall Dirt Series was in Farley, Iowa at 300 Raceway on Friday night. Uh, the one, one of its two planned races for the weekend, the, the other Iowa race on Saturday at 34 Raceway uh, was canceled because of weather. The Friday night race, I was watching it on uh, Mav TV there, and uh, I'll have to admit that was one of the wildest features, wildest races I've seen in a long time. Um, it had a a flare of a, a a tire race where you're watching a race where guys are losing tires left and right, and you're wondering who's going to be the next one uh, to have a tire go down. And although there were, were tires that went down, ultimately that's what cost Kyle Bronson the lead and paved the way for Mike Marler to, to win on the, the final uh, couple of laps there. But what was really was, was uh, knocking drivers out left and right was uh, bent under nose pieces. They were, I guess, hooked up so hard in the track. It wasn't, it wasn't rough like, cars bouncing all over the place it was just that they were going so fast it was so hooked up and so choppy that they kept hitting their right fronts on the ground and it was folding their nose pieces underneath and uh, definitely was a compelling race uh, unfortunately for you're watching to see who was the next one to go down and then at the end there you had Kyle Bronson lose a a right rear tire he still uh, managed to come back and finish third um, after a a couple of uh, confusing but ultimately official disqualifications of Bobby Pierce in third and Chad Simpson in fourth. And that moved Kyle Bronson up to third. Only seven cars were running at the finish. But the big thing to note there is Mike Marler gets his first win of the season. Robert, did you realize that Marler hadn't won a race all year before no, this actually, one? you know, I actually know I, I had not, uh, I, I didn't know that it's, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to believe, you know, it's the middle of May already. And, for Mike, which, you know, Mike doesn't, it's not like Mike's out there running 60 races like everybody else. You know, he, he has a, a very 
uh, kind of a picky schedule, so to speak. But still, you know, he has raced enough to get a win. Uh, and so uh, so for him to just now uh, pick up a, a victory is is uh, kind of strange. And, you know, then he goes and does it so far away from home up there in Iowa. So, uh, But he's good on, you know, if you look at M- Mikey through the years, I guess he's really kind of been good at those Midwestern tracks, believe it or not. Maybe that kind of fits his driving style a little bit. You know, he's when he was younger, at least he was always kind of a uh, up on the cushion against the wall. I've seen him just lap after lap, scrape the wall and send sparks flying at Duck River before. I've watched a race at Duck River. It's like there's no way he can finish this race if he keeps doing that. And sure enough, he didn't. Um, but that, that's been several years. That's just kind of his driving style. And so that track, you know, suited him. Of course, then he got a little bit of, of luck, of course, uh, Bronson falling out. So, you know, one thing I wonder about that race is you see how much travel that these cars have already uh, with with you. All you got to do is stand in front of one and look and see how much higher the right front is compared to the left front so you see how much they're going to travel already uh and then some of these cars now are built with uh with their bumpers where you can actually raise them up another inch or two uh just by unbolting the bumper uh, from the from the front frame horns the rails there and, and sliding it up uh and i just wonder how many drivers chose to do that because it's not an easy task you know you're like kind of relocating you know just a few bolts and stuff and and connecting points there I just wonder how many drivers chose to raise their stuff up even more or even take uh, more of the material off of the right front, uh, anticipating that uh, that scenario, because to have that many guys roll noses o- over and fold their nose pieces under is um, is kind of odd. That just tells you the, ex- the extremities of the track there and, and how much the cars were really getting up on that on that right front. So. It was definitely a an odd an odd race, and anytime you see a, a national touring series race, because those races tend to pay pretty good. You see a lot of regional races where like seven, eight, ten guys finish, but to see a, a national touring race where only seven guys finish, you know it had to be kind of a rough and tumble deal because usually those races, the pay is pretty staggered and it pays pretty good through the field and, and guy. And plus, you're racing for points a lot of guys, so they're going to stay out there and hang with it. So it was an it was an odd night for sure there in Iowa. Yeah, and one thing worth mentioning, the uh, I said seven cars running at the finish. Two of those were Tim McCready and Ricky Thornton Jr., who both had had problems with their uh, their nose folding under and were basically just idling around the bottom to make sure they got points. So really, in reality, there were five cars running at the finish. It was uh, truly a race of attrition. Like As I mentioned, McCready had problems. He was the first one, I believe, to, to, to have to pit. I think he was running somewhere in the top five, and at the at that time, you look at it, it's like oh, he's gonna he's gonna lose a lot of points. And, you know, lose old points leader. I think Davenport was somewhere near the top five at that point, and it's like Davenport has a chance here to pick up some points and and continue that comeback. Of course, then uh, it flips around. By the end of it, McCready has somehow survived to get a top five, and Davenport ends up I think with eleventh place finish. Robert, you had something you were gonna add. When I first looked at uh, the rundown there, and I'm like, Bronson really came back and finished, you know, top five or wherever he finished there, third or whatever. I was after leading and going to the rear. How far back did you know? Then I'm like, oh wait, only X. Because a lot of times when you're watching video, you don't really get a, a feel for how many cars are still on the track and stuff, you know. And so like, you knew it was. It, it, there weren't very many left out there when you see that Bronson had trouble with only two or three laps left and still managed to come back and get a top five there so so that kind of also tells you how extreme the conditions were for sure 
Yeah, he restarted. I believe he restarted in fifth after Chance pitting to change wow. his tire. He actually wow. did move up a, a spot. Uh, he passed Simpson for fourth, uh, but the series officials uh, deemed that he had fired too early, or he did. He passed him before the, the start-finish line on the restart, and so then they moved him back to fifth, penalized him one spot in the rundown, but then – Bobby Pierce and Simpson were both light at scales, which then moved uh, uh, Bronson up to third. So it was kind of a confusing series of events that led for him to go from fifth to third, uh, fifth to fourth, back to fifth, then to third uh, by the time the final official rundown was completed. Any? Uh, did you guys have anything else uh, wanted to add about the kind of crazy night that was there at Farley? Uh, I thought it was uh, pretty neat there in victory lane when Mike Marler uh, – stopped uh i mean well he actually grabbed the microphone i, I was able to catch the end of it there uh, right after port royal was done and I, I got out to the car and i watched the last few laps but uh i see mike marler grab the microphone from james essex and he starts talking I'm like what's he doing there james was a little shocked i thought and uh, uh and then he just said that he wanted to give all his money that he like his portion of the of the winnings uh i'm not sure how much that is i mean that's all that's all a percentage wise with drivers and their car owners so we don't know it's not really a a known thing could be 30 percent 40 percent 50 percent but whatever it was it was going to be a, a good amount that he was going to split up between his two crew guys uh josh davis and and, and jerry and, and donk yeah jerry sprouse so uh yeah, they were going to get a nice little bonus, and I thought it was pretty neat. I think that kind of endeared uh, Marler to the crowd, too, there. They're all – I think they were pretty uh, – feeling that was a pretty thoughtful move there by uh, by Marler. And, uh, and and the other thought I had of that was uh, when, I, when I turned it on, I'm, I'm like, look at these race cars. And obviously it had rained there a lot overnight and into the morning, and, and the track was heavy and muddy. And, and I saw these cars just like they, – they were muddied up. I still don't understand how was Bobby Pierce and, and Chad Simpson light. I mean, how light were they? I mean, how were they light when they were in that race? That was a racetrack where I, I didn't think anybody could be light. You're going to be carrying so much extra mud weight on your car when you get to the scales. So that was uh, that was my blew my mind a little bit. That like, oh my God, there there, there was drivers that were light in, at the scales that just didn't seem possible when you're on a heavy racetrack like that. Yeah, I think uh, Bobby Pierce, at least Bobby Pierce, I don't know about Simpson, but I think Bobby Pierce would agree with you asking asking <laughs> those questions from what I, I read on social media, but we won't won't get too far into that. But um, the one the other thing I did uh, want to mention that uh, kind of you kind of brought up looking at the cars was Jimmy Owens. And there were, again, there was a lot of guys with front end damage, but Jimmy Owens' nose had literally been pulled entirely off his car where it looked like he was running a modified again at one point. So it was, uh, it was definitely a crazy night. Uh, and again, we met, you know, as Kevin mentioned, it had rained, it rained all week and was, I think kind of a overcast day and track was heavy and wet, uh, unfortunately led to, to those conditions. The, uh, the other storyline kind of under the radar storyline at Farley over on Friday night was a uh, longtime series regular Earl Pearson jr. Missing his, uh, missing the race and and I, I missed was it did they say it's his first Lucas Oil race he's missed? Yeah. The series has been going on since uh, 2005. Missed his first one. Uh, fortunately, his father passed away, and he was back home with family there for the funeral. And obviously, we uh, offer our condolences and thoughts to Earl and the entire family. But it did bring up an interesting aspect, you know, with Pearson being such a as we mentioned stalwart of the series and longtime series regular, and, and kind of. What guys like that, uh, drivers who are, are with one series or at least you know committed to, to a tour for so long, kind of what they mean to the series and how important that, that series loyalty is to that series to keep fans coming and, and kind of keep the series going. And I just wonder if you guys had any you know long thoughts on perhaps with, with Pearson and his run there, um, 
any other any other examples or thoughts on longtime series regulars that have kind of stood out to you through the years? Todd, I'll get your take first. The guy I always think of, and it's on a lower level than than Earl with the National Series, and and Earl, I can't remember the exact number of races, but it is a big number. Uh, but Daryl DeFrance up there with the Deary Brothers Summer Series, the IMCA Series, he literally ran every race from the beginning of the series in 1987 to the demise of the series, or actually the selling of the series in 2019. So he had a 33-year stretch of going to every single race. And I, it was in the 500 somewhere, uh, so not quite as many races as Earl. But I always think of, of Daryl. Uh, I remember in like 2000, I did a story on Malau. You've been to all these races. You haven't missed one. That's amazing. And he had 20 years to go. You know, it's, it, it's pretty amazing, those guys that can do that. And, you know, as, as a looking back over, uh, you know, series and, you know, you have these eras where you kind of identify these drivers with the series. The, the stars in the early ninety, early to mid-90s with Francis and Eckert and Davey Johnson and Donnie Moran and Shaver and Balzano. Kind of, they just had such a regular series and then kind of, or set of guys and then have a Tampa later on the 90s with Bloomquist and McDowell and Wallace and Cook and Freddie Smith and Skip Arp. You know, you really have... Uh, when, when guys stick with the series for many years, you know, you kind of have a, uh, it kind of sets an era for that series. Uh, and that also kind of antithetically, I look at that with the, the major series. Cause I feel like guys like us and pundits and other people kind of, sometimes we're always rooting for something to be different. Oh, we want a new guy. We want this guy to switch series. You know, we, we, we needed to freshen it up with someone else. So, you know, I think a series more or less would like to have the same, you know, 10 or 12 guys, especially if they're really good, uh, race forever and become series stalwarts like Pearson. Uh, but but I think in some way, some of us get might get a little bored with that or it's more exciting to, to see somebody else jump in on, on a series and and uh, and be like the fresh face or whatever. It's funny you mentioned us uh, reporters and pundits talking about wanting to mix things up and how many times we talked about if what would what happen if Brandon Shepard ran the Lucas Oil Series or if Jimmy Owen switched to the Outlaws and uh, just to kind of kick it around. But I, I think there is something to say about you know series series loyalty and kind of building that um, kind of that brand that when drivers are associated with the series that I think it probably helps fans kind of attract fans and keep them interested. Robert, do you have any uh, examples you can think of? Uh, don't don't forget that Brandon Shepard actually did run uh, the Lucas Oil Series for a while there, and he, he finished fourth in points in 2016. So uh, that's he's such a Brandon is such a you know that world of outlaws and that Rocket One cars such uh, you know uh, tied to that world of outlaw series there that we kind of forget that when he was before he he got full time with that team that he he did toy with the uh, Lucas Series for a while and and uh, finish fourth in points. But, you know, along the regional lines, one of the guys that stands out to me is Ronnie Johnson. You know, how many years he ran was just loyal to B.J. Parker and the Southern All-Stars. Uh, he, he leads that series with 62 wins, and and he, he was just, to me, growing up, uh, you know, Ronnie Johnson was just s symbolic with the, the Southern All-Star Series coming through town. Uh, and obviously, you know, Ronnie's still out there racing now, but uh, the Southern All-Stars is kind of uh, a more of a, a, a series for, for young guys kind of trying to make a name of themselves other than the Clint Smiths and McDowell's and, and RJ's that were falling that year after year after year because back then, you know, there really wasn't 
um, you know, the Southern All-Stars kind of morphed into the, the Have a Tampa deal and they kind of started this national deal. But, you know, RJ with the Southern All-Stars sends out, you know, and, and another guy, I think when Rick Eckert, you know, left uh, the World Outlaws deal there, that was like, wow, what, what would, you know, that's not going to seem right, you know, with, with uh, you know, and it happens, like Todd said, you go through these periods where these guys are just, you feel like they are the series, you know, uh, Daryl, Daryl Landigan with, with the world outlaws, you know, uh, uh, Steve Francis, all the years that he ran, you know, first starting out in the Stars stuff and then, you know, going to, uh, to the national tours and stuff. So you go through these periods where, where drivers are connected to series and that, that and you kind of feel comfortable with that and fans can kind of, know what to expect when they get there. And then sometimes when a guy isn't, um, isn't on the tour anymore, you're like, wait, what are we going to do? Uh, well, we're going to go on and we're going to get new guys. And that's, that's what we continue to do. And if you look at, you know, what's the, what are we going to do without Scott Bloomquist on a national tour? Well, we're going to keep racing. What are we going to do without, you know, this guy or that guy? Well, we're going to keep racing and we're going to get new faces. And, and that's kind of, that's kind of where we're, where we're at. And so, uh, but yeah, Ronnie Johnson on the, on the, you know, on the regional level, uh, Rick Eckert and Lanigan and, and Francis kind of on the national level. It's like when those guys kind of left for me, it's like, okay, fresh faces. Here we go. It, it's funny that you mentioned Robert, the, uh, the Southern all-stars cause, and it's not to pick on them in particular, but I feel like for, we talked about last week, I think it was about what makes a good regional series and sometimes not having those guys, um, you know, the, the series regulars, longtime regulars, not just the ones that come in for a year or two here and there. But when you have the same guys, one or even if it's just one or two on a regional series that run a series year after year after year, it's easier to kind of, I think, to, to, to know what you feel like, you know, what's going on with the series and who you're watching. And some series right now are struggling kind of when you lose a guy like that to replace them with someone new. I think, like I said, I mentioned the Southern All-Stars. It's been a long time since they've had um, I guess they had you know, Randy Weaver ran it for a while, Riley Hickman, some of those guys. And I think they're in a, in a transition now uh, where they're looking for that, that series stalwart guy to kind of take that uh, and a couple of guys to take that, that banner and carry it forward. Well, you know, I think that you need a guy to run it five or six years. You don't need a guy to come in and, and run it for a year or two and win it. And then he's gone and then you never hear from the guy again, or, or he's gone to another tour. I think you need for, for series identities, you know, purposes, you need a guy to come in and two or three guys to run this thing for two, three, four, five, you know, five seasons to, to give that, uh, the brand some identity, uh, without that, you know, it, it is difficult for the fans to, like you said, it's very difficult for the fans to know exactly what's going on from, from season to season. And so, so that, yeah, that, that brand identity, uh, it really helps with that. If you have a guy who can stick with it for five or six seasons, for sure. Definitely. Kevin, you uh, worked for a number of years for the World of All, uh, Outlaws and seen a lot of series regulars come and go. And some some guys stay for a long time while you were there. Do you have any uh, perspective you can add or any thoughts on uh, any examples of series, uh, longtime series regulars? Yeah, I do. Um, with the Outlaws, uh, the, there was just such a base of, uh, you know, of, of the same guys that really had a, the, from the original back to 2004 when that uh, series was reformed and with the dirty dozen yeah with the dirty dozen and I mean look at those guys how long a lot of them lasted uh Rick Eckert uh, of course like Robert said Robert said and and Chubb Frank and then and Daryl Lanigan and you also had Clint Smith for a while and 
I think Clint might have been the first one to sort of drop off uh, of touring regularly. And and then uh, little by little, there were more. Lanigan did some Lucas racing. Uh, Chubb fell off the tour. I mean, Shane Clanton came on the tour in 2005 and was really uh, until just last year he was with he was a. Um, a, a mainstay with the world of outlaws. So it, it's, it, it definitely has gone around now. I mean, now that, that world of outlaws tour doesn't have those names that it had be, the, that for so long. And the one remaining is, uh, isn't the driver. It's the, that blue number one car uh, of Mark Richards, the rocket house car. And actually I was just talking to him, uh, Mark, a little bit about that on, on Saturday at Port Royal. He was, he mentioned, he goes, I'm the last one standing here of, of that original group that went dry went racing uh all over the country uh back in 2004 uh he's he's had several drivers obviously you know josh bart hartman and now brandon rick eckert drove for one year two for him on the tour but he's always been there that thing has won he's won with everybody he's won uh more races than anyone total because uh you know as a team team owner uh, and that would be the big thing. If the rocket number one isn't on the World of Outlaws tour, then it really takes on a different look because it's just synonymous. Uh, he's just synonymous with the World of Outlaws uh, after uh, just now it's 17 years. It's It's been a long time. Right. A lot of uh, a lot of history looking back on there with that that discussion and a lot of good examples uh, you guys bring up. And and speaking of history, I guess history will be made this weekend with the first traditional crown jewel uh, of the season uh, with the show me 100 at Lucas Oil Speedway in Wheatland, Missouri for the Lucas Oil Late Model Dirt Series. It's interesting storyline for this one is it's the first uh, first time in two years that the show me will be on its traditional Memorial Day weekend with the 2019 version of the of the race having to be canceled because of uh, storm damage to the facility. And then, of course, last year's show me 100 was moved to July due to COVID-19 uh, restrictions and, and the pandemic. Uh, as we look ahead to the show me, I figured we would take another look back and maybe uh, talk about perhaps each talk about some show me 100 memories, a favorite memory from the show me 100, whether it was what happened at one of them or, you know, your own experience from covering it. Just something that uh, when you think of the show me 100, something that stands out to you, Todd, I'll uh, let you start it. I guess I have a couple of memories because I'll do one from uh, from the old West Plains track where the tr race originated and then now at Lucas Oil Speedway, which, which is interesting about the race. Uh, you know, the, there, there are a number of big races that have kind of moved venues. This one has had the fortunate, uh, fortunate experience to be at a great racetrack and, and a good facility, but it definitely a great racing surface. And now it has moved uh, to Lucas Wells Speedway, which arguably the best dirt track as far as the entire facility and, and good racing as well. So, uh, two good homes for this, uh, track or for this race and definitely, uh, uh, you know, kind of two different eras. So uh, my first thing about West Plains, I remember first going there and th their pits was kind of windy and back into the woods when they had to show me because there were so many cars. And I remember showing up on Memorial Day weekend, you know, it'd be summer would be upon you, beautiful weather. And you take that, take those laps through the, uh, through the pits to see who's there because it was a, it was a race where, uh, people came from kind of everywhere. There wasn't a whole lot of cars right there in southern Missouri. Uh, so uh, so you get guys from Indiana. You get guys from Arizona, I remember. You'd get uh, some of those Iowa guys would come down. It was quite a mix of guys. And it seemed like every time you'd go around uh, 
go around another patch of trees. You're like, oh, there's, you know, there's Gary Webb. I can't believe he came down. Or, or uh, you know, there's Mark Barber from Brownstown. I can't believe he made the show all the way from Indiana. Uh, that was always exciting. Um, and and lots of great memories from West Plains. But the 2008 race, which was the first one Dirt on Dirt covered there, uh, I, I just remember the heat races. And I, I know our, our production quality isn't quite what it was back in 2008. But I would go back, uh, go back to 2008 and watch the heat races from the Show Me 100. It was an, un I mean, you would not believe how many people are coming from ninth to win and sixth to win and all kinds of crazy passing and battles for the lead. And I remember sitting up in the press box and because I was writing kind of a story about the heat races, and I was, uh, I was asking Miss Billy, Miss Billy Gibson there, you know, just like. Oh, did, like, did you see that? That was so exciting. And she's just like completely nonchalant. She goes, ah, it's like that every week here. I'm like, ah, I don't know about that. Now, I like some West Plains racing, but that, that night was particularly special. And in that 2008 race, indeed, Bloomquist comes from 24th and, and leads the final eight laps, uh, passing Jimmy Mars late to win. And then uh, my Lucas Oil Speedway memory is kind of a bad one for, for Steve Casebolt, and he'll probably, you know, not be crazy. I'm talking about his bad moments. Uh, but he came all the way from 22nd to the lead there in Wheatland uh, in 2010. I mean, he is he's going to win the race. I mean, he's out. He's ahead of Ray Cook, who eventually won, except uh, he breaks a drive shaft coming out of turn four there with 11 laps to go. I mean, just a crushing, crushing moment for him, uh, you know, to have that rally and get to the front there. And I'll remember, so I wrote a, wrote a story and talked to him. And, of course, he was very upset and, you know, how crushing and disappointed he was. And he wasn't even sure how the drive shaft broke, what what first broke or whatever. Uh, but I remember a, a thing, uh, I looked up what I wrote about it. Um, and he said, you know, he wasn't sure what, what broke first. Uh, um, and then I wrote, I wrote, uh, what broke first is uncertain, but what broke last is clear case bolts heart. Uh, and he was <laughs> truly, truly upset in the pits. Um, yeah, it's a $30,000 win, uh, slipping from out, out from under your grasp. Well, that was a, that was a rough one, but probably the most memorable moment, uh, I personally saw at, at Wheatland for that race. A heartbreaker indeed that one would be for for case bolt there uh robert what about you what's some uh some show me memories you got oh uh, you know the, the only actual show me that i attended is um the 2001 race out in west plains and i absolutely fell in love with the place as soon as i got there i, I don't like you know the, the big long racetracks i don't like the the half miles and I, i'm more of a bullring type guy but but this track, you know, was slick and slow. And I, one thing that stands out as I'm walking through there, you know, and there were, uh, I can't remember how many cars were there. I'd have to look it up, but, you know, close to 100, I'd say. But, you know, I was just amazed at this little track out in the middle of nowhere and how great it raced. I'm standing in turns one and two, and they're just going by me, and it looks like they're in slow motion, but they're three and four wide. And and uh, and I, it was just really really fun place to, to watch a race and uh, fortunately i got to go back there uh this past memorial day of course it wasn't for a show me but i got to go back there for the first time since 2001 and that was yeah it was really really an awesome trip to go back but you know the track i hate that it moved personally i mean i, I would probably 
love Wheatland as well, but that just uh, facility out there, you know, it, is it the same as Wheatland? Absolutely not. But man, the racing and the track and the atmosphere, and there's just something about being, you know, at West Plains and Memorial Day weekend. It was just a fun trip. A little side note that stands out. I remember, I remember the first thing I did when I, when I got there, I was walking through and I was talking to some people and I stopped at, uh, at Billy Moyer's souvenir trailer and bought my daughter who was two years old at the time a pink Billy Moyer t-shirt. I remember that because uh, at that time when I was working for working with Todd and Brian McLeod and uh, over there at, in North Carolina at National Dirt Digest, I, f- I felt like, you know, when every time I left home, uh, I had to get something for my kids or, you know, take a souvenir. Of course, you can't do that now. I'd go broke. But, uh, but you know, I took my took my daughter a, a pink Billy Moyer t-shirt. So I, for some reason that stands out. I don't know. I don't know how long we, I'm sure she grew out of it soon. But, and the other thing is, I guess is, hearing about it because you know back then you didn't have social media and the internet and all this stuff so we would always duck river always had a race on sunday so you would go to duck river and kind of get the news from like ronnie johnson when he was coming because he ronnie johnson dale mcdowell all these guys always stopped back and ran duck river's sunday race on their way back home so it was always kind of cool to go and kind of you know what happened at west plains last night and kind of get your information that way and and, uh, and it was always, and like you said, it's the first crown jewel of the year. And so you're always wanting to know who won this big race and, and, uh, and, and how things went out there. And so that was kind of where you got your info the next day. It's, uh, it's an interesting uh, perspective mentioning the going to Duck River to find out what happened the night before at, at the show me. I, as a, you know, millennial who grew up in the, the digital age, I, I can't, can, can vaguely relate to that, but not, not really. Kevin, what uh, what do you got as far as uh, show me memories? I know you've been cover- you've covered the past few, and you know you're you're letting me head out there this weekend, so I appreciate that. But uh, looking back on the past uh, few years or back in the day, what do you what do you have as far as memories of the show me? Yeah, I do have a couple that are really just stick out. Um, and, and of course, these uh these involve Scott Bloomquist. There's always a Scott Bloomquist. Uh, you can probably you know factor him into a lot. But I remember 2016. Uh, the lap 91 was especially crazy. Bloomquist takes the lead from Jimmy Owens, and then immediately in turn one he loses his left rear wheel. It just it just comes off and and he spins around and and I just remember the crowd just going insane. I mean there's just just some events, uh, some uh, time, moments in time at some of these races where you just remember that that instance when because the, the place just exploded and there he goes spinning around but he comes back out and then during that caution flag bobby pierce had take had was going to be uh, uh moving into the lead he gets a flat tire more mayhem and then scott bloomquist comes back out and bobby pierce come back out they tangle with two to go and pierce gets another flat and and bloomquist ended up finishing second in that race uh uh, with Owens winning, it was, it was really just wild. Uh, uh, the last those last nine ten laps, and and then in eighteen, uh, yeah, this is the probably one of the weirdest things I've ever seen at a racetrack, uh, or what, what happened with Bloomquist there. Bloomquist was not allowed to take uh, not make a qualifying lap on Friday's preliminary night because he was found by the Lucas Oil officials. His crew guy, who was at that at that moment with that uh, event, was Jordan Bland, who used to race also. He had uh, manipulated the the draw. He had been over there with they had a bingo, you know, the little spinning bingo thing at the Lucas Oil trailer that they used with the nut with the balls come out. He had snuck over there earlier apparently when nobody was looking, and he pulled a couple out and he saw the number two, so he put it in his pocket. 
And then later on, when he goes to draw for Bloomquist, he's like, oh, well, look at this. I got a number two, you know, and they're like, oh, all right. And then it came out that uh, there was some little hanky panky going on here and and they were caught. He tried to bland, tried to like deny it for a while. And then he then he admitted it. And they found that there wasn't a number two and a 91 in the in the draw. Like when he came up to draw, they realized it. And because uh, somebody had spotted a little bit of some stuff going on. So they said, Bloomquist, you can't run a. Uh, your time trials, but anyway, he comes back uh, amazingly, like uh, like he would do a lot of times in the past. He qualifies through the B main after tangling with Jimmy Mars, and his left front wheel is not even moving. Left front suspension it was messed up, didn't even work anymore. So he's lifting the left front to get around the corners, and he qualifies, comes back from the rear of the, of the feature, finishes third, gets the pole for Saturday's uh. Uh, show me 100 and wins it for the sixth time, but first time at Wheatland. So, I mean, some pretty, um, those were just two out of those three years. There were some crazy uh, Scott Bloomquist stories. And, and, and of course it was cool last year seeing Peyton Looney win. I mean, only the second Missouri driver to win the show me 100. So uh, even though it was in July, it wasn't quite the same as, as seeing it on Memorial Day weekend, but it was neat to see that local guy beat the big boys and, and really uh, celebrate. But uh, nothing tops those Bloomquist ones that I've seen at the show me. Yeah, definitely. He's uh, made for some compelling storylines uh, himself there, Scott Bloomquist has. But uh, one thing I'll, I'll mention, my uh, show me experience was actually my first time out to, to Wheatland for the show me in 2011. I had, I believe it just started with Dirt on Dirt earlier that year or light later in the, the in late 2010. And it was actually my first crown jewel race that I had been to. I had uh, covered the the world finals a few a couple of times at Charlotte, um, but to, you know, to one of the more traditional crown jewels, that was my first one. And it was really cool seeing the track, uh, the facility for the first time. Um, such a nice place, and uh, and and all that. But I remember from the the race, I believe that year, uh, the year before that, Jimmy Owens had just missed winning or, or something. S something happened where he was, you know, was a, uh, a near miss. But then he won in 2011 while I was there, and I remember writing the story on about how in 2010 he thought – or he wondered – after not winning in 2010, he wondered if he'd ever get another chance to win a, you know, the Show Me 100 and get that crown jewel trophy. Of course, I wrote about that in the story, how he did win it in 2011 and was relieved, and then he goes on to win, I believe, you know, two more in a row and, and four more total. So it really wasn't uh, much of a question if he was going to get more Show Me 100 trophies. So I just remember that being kind of a, a looking back now, kind of a, for, a funny storyline. But let's finish up with uh, one more trip around a round table here, a virtual round tra uh, table uh, with what I like to call one more thing where we each give one more uh, kind of news item or race result or something that stood out to us from the, the past week. And uh, Todd, I'll let you go first on that one. Yeah, I think the interesting uh... – events up at East Moline on Sunday. Uh, Doug Curtis has Tyler Herb step in to drive his car in the IMCA weekly event. Uh, and sure enough, uh, Tyler gets that car going on the high side and passes Andy Nazorowski there toward the end of the race. Uh, but as it turns out to last, he's disqualified because his deck height is too high. Uh, so Andy Nazorowski gets the win, but, uh, but I love that Tyler Herb is kind of a race anywhere, do anything guy, and that and that he's there, and I'm sure it's, it was a thrill for the fans to see Tyler Herb uh, uh, get to cross the line first, if uh, if not win the race. Yeah, I saw a uh, social media post on that. It was kind of wild to see that he had he had ran that, but like you said, it's kind of cool to see it as well. Robert, what do you got? 
yeah, I just wanted to, uh, you know, give a shout out to Ashton Winger who picked up his uh, uh, Southern All-Star win down there at uh, Sonoa. Uh, the uh, the Roscoe Smith Classic down there, you know, the race that honors uh, uh, Clint Smith's father, you know, longstanding racing family right there in the in the Sonoa area. Uh, great job to Ashton uh, for picking up a win and and uh, the, you know. I'm sure he hopes that that kind of gets him going now as as we head into these these summer months. There you go, Kevin. What about you? Just mentioned him a little while ago there, Peyton Looney, uh, talking about the Show Me, uh, the defending champion of of the Show Me 100, and and when he gets there this weekend, it'll be the first time he races. His he's been racing. He's raced entered a race all year. That's kind of a, a, a interesting note there to. Uh, to talk about where the, the, the guy just won it last year and he did, he, he ran the whole MLR, MLRA to, tour last year to insert the championship. He, he fell short just right at the end, uh, kind of, uh, you know, and disappointing, you know, uh, you know, heartbreaking fashion. He lost it right towards the end of the season. Uh, and he decided to, I guess uh, he's uh, just decided to back off this year and, and, and now he's gearing up. So, how much? Uh, how we'll, we'll have to see how he does. And uh, considering that he hasn't run all year, usually you don't go into that race uh, totally uh, uh, without any laps under your belt uh, in in a season. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see how he does. My one more thing, I was going to mention uh, Mike Palacini Jr. Uh, getting the Comp Cam Series win at Greenville Speedway. Uh, it was a big win for him, and it was a, it was a pretty good race. That, that Greenville, I feel like, is one of those tracks that it had a little more spotlight on it. Maybe a couple more bigger races could really kind of earn a, a place as far as the notable uh, racy tracks um, there. So that's one of my favorite tracks, uh, Greenville Speedway, and, and saw a good race there. Brian Rickman finished second in that race, and he is having a heck, a heck of the year on the Comp Cam Series. He has a win, and uh, a couple weeks ago ran second to Davenport at Batesville uh, in the series race there, the, the second race of the two series races there, and, and gave Davenport pretty much all he could handle in the closing laps there. So even though uh, neither of those produced wins for him, Brian Rickman is having a, a great year leading the points there on the Comp Camps Tour. All right, I believe that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Dirt Reporters Podcast. As always, we appreciate everyone for joining us for this episode. Have a great Memorial Day weekend, whether you're at the races or doing something else to enjoy the start, uh, unofficial start of the summer. We uh, wish you a great weekend, and we'll see you back here next week.